Hi, my friends. This is Carter, and welcome to this episode of Making It Up, the conversation series uh, where two writers just chit-chat for quite some time. And at the end, we always make up a little short story together. Um, you know, I feel like it's been a couple weeks since I've recorded one. Not that I feel like I'm getting out of shape from it, um, uh, but there was just a gap. But I've been filling that gap um, with getting the word out about my um, my retreat that I'm going to be offering. So I'm going to plug that right now for all of you uh, struggling and aspiring writers out there. I am offering a um, two and a half day in-person retreat in Boulder, Colorado, August 9th through 11th. Um, and it's called the gentle novelist. And the whole gist of it is you're going to come and I'm going to inspire and motivate and teach craft. And if there's a book that's been in your head for years and years and years, and you said, I, I want to do this. I always wanted to do this. It's a dream of yours. And yet you haven't done it or you've started and stopped it. Um, you know, I want this to be the seminal event where you come and you leave and you say, I'm now equipped with the tools to finish writing this book. And more importantly, I'm equipped with um, the accountability and the inspiration and the motivation to finally do this. Because I will tell you the big secret about novel writing is it's not that hard. Uh, at times, it feels incredibly hard, but overall, it's not that hard. But you need to get the right perspective in your head to be able to do it. And that, for me, took years <laughs> to get to that point. So now I'm teaching about it. Um, so if you want to know more about the Gentle Novelist Retreat, please go to my website. There's a link there uh, just that just says Retreats. Click on there, and you can see how to register. You can contact me. We can have a phone call to see if you have any questions, see if it's a program that may, might be right for you. So check that out. So I'm excited because I just had a lovely conversation. When I have a lovely conversation, uh, it kind of amps me up a little bit and I get like, wow, I get all excited about writing again. Not that I ever lose it that much, but uh, you know, you talk to another writer and, and it's, it's, I, I tend to get inspired by the people that I talk to. And today was certainly no exception. Uh, today, I talked to the highly talented uh, Kara Thomas. So she is the author of The Darkest Corners, Little Monsters, The Cheerleaders, and That Weekend, which was a Barnes & Noble's YA book club pick for 2021. Her books have been sold in multiple languages and have been nominated for the International Thriller Writers Award. Hey, I had one book nominated for the International Thriller Writers Award, and I fucking lost. But that's okay. That's okay. Just to be nominated on all that, you know? Um, so Kara is obviously incredibly talented. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, she honestly hasn't been writing all that long. Um, you know, she started writing when she was a freshman in college in 2008. Um, and her 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 kind of context be behind why she started writing is pretty interesting. She describes that in the interview. If you keep on listening, um, her, and she has a new book coming out, um, out of the ashes. And this is a little bit of a, a change for her. I mean, still, you know, she's traditionally, or, you know, she's traditionally has written YA, you know, kind of dark YA novels. And now she's kind of transitioning in this book to, um, uh, just a dark psychological thriller, uh, more kind of adult oriented, um, out of the ashes, which is coming out May 1st. Um, so it was interesting to hear kind of her talking about, you know, how that's been received versus how some of her YA titles have 
been received. And she talks a lot about just, you know, the idea of becoming a writer, you know, what does that look like? What does that career path mean? You know, what do you do to go down that route and how do you actually do it? Um, how hard is it to get published? How hard is it to write that first novel? And, you know, with a lot of writers, we hear kind of a similar story. It's like, you don't necessarily think about all those things. You just write the book because the book is what has been, you know, knocking around in your head for a long time. And you, you know, you find the hubris and the tenacity to sit down and write it, uh, not knowing anything. And, you know, it's just like, you know, it's just like a grown person going to the gym for the first time. They never really worked out and they're intimidated, but you have to start somewhere. And you go to the gym and you do three push-ups and you go home. That's day one. That's what it's like being a writer. You're not going to be great on day one, um, but you're going to build that muscle. And the important thing is that you have um, the desire and the tenacity to do it, right? Uh, because those are the things that are going to make you see it through to the end. And that, I mean, is certainly Kara's story, right? She is, she has, she, she has just willed <laughs> these books out because she's had a passion for it and she just sits down and writes. Um, and, and, you know, as she explains in this interview, you know, like I said, it's not that hard, but it's not going to do it for you. You have to sit down and write. Um, and sometimes that's the hardest thing to do is just, uh, making yourself accountable and, um, you know, overcoming that fear of, uh, failure, fear of success. Um, I get it. I get it. Um, but I think if you listen to this interview, you'll, you'll be inspired by Kara and hear how kind of she was able to um, push through and obviously become incredibly successful um, as a full-time novelist. So um, like I said, man, she's inspiring. I, I really enjoyed my conversation with her. I think you're going to love this one. This is my conversation with Kara Thomas. Yeah. Good to see you. I, so there's actually another person in the waiting room named Kara Thomas. Did you try to log on twice? I think it happened accidentally because it um, it forced an update. So I think, uh, it, yeah, it's probably me. Double. Let me see if I can. Well, well that's a boring explanation. I wanted to hit it and see like a ghost come in. My my stalker um, who was trying to assume my identity. <laughs> I'm reading a, a, a book right now for a blurb, and it's a very ghostly book, so that's kind of uh, wrapped in my head at the moment. Oh, you'll uh, have to tell me the title afterwards. Do you? It's always a weird thing, right? When you're blurbing, you're like, okay, sure. I, I, I'm always, if I can, I'm always happy to do it because I was always so, so grateful, you know, especially early on when anybody would give me a blurb. But then it's always the crapshoot of like, what if this book sucks? Yeah, it's I, I'm terrible, and if it sucks, I kind of just well, I don't ghost, but I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't have the time to read it because it's better than saying, uh, yeah, I mean, I gave it a shot, and it was awful. Oh, and as opposed to actually giving like kind of a, a, a lukewarm blurb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 a hard thing to do, but it's also exciting because especially I love like blurbing like a debut because I'm like, who knows who this person is going to become. 
you know, this might be the next big thing. And I'm excited to see a fresh voice and, and, and connect with the reading. Yeah, definitely. Where are you? Where do you live? Uh, Long Island, New York. Oh, where, but my, uh, my partner, she's from, um, Northport, Long Island. Oh yeah. I love Northport. We actually just looked at a house there not too long oh. ago. And that's kind of far from me. It's like half an hour from me, but that's, that's so I'm on the South shore. That's on the North shore. Okay. Got it. And were you, are you born and raised there? Or? Yes. Born and raised on the South shore. I left for Boston for college for a bit, realized I was more of a New York person than a uh, Boston person. Yeah, I, as did my, my partner left for Boston for college. She went to uh, BU. Mm-hmm. It's a strange experience being a New Yorker in Boston, I'll oh, say. Why, why is that? The, it's just like the whole like New York-Boston rivalry. You will get absolutely eviscerated for your New York accent in Boston. <laughs> yeah. They... <laughs> you have a very, if, if, if at all, you have a very subtle accent. Um, did you... Was was that intentional? Did you work on that? They they beat it out of me, and also um, it it came up a lot just in like publishing meetings, like going to New York. A lot of people who like live in New York City and work in publishing are not from New York, right? So they'll immediately point out, "Oh, wow, you have a very heavy New York accent." So I kind of learned to like code switch in professional environments and try not to oh coffee and long Island. <laughs> But, but I mean, is that, I'm curious, is that something that was like, you could just uh, consciously control or is it like, I had to go, I, I, I had to do my uh, own little uh, Dr. Doodle snuff it out of me kind of a thing. Over time, it just became like a little bit more natural. I snuffed certain things out. I never really like had a, a very heavy, obnoxious Long Island accent yeah. to begin with, but the more you're aware of it in other people, because there's like degrees of the Long Island accent. Oh, so there are degrees. Yes. I'll be in the supermarket and it's like, I do not understand how this person talks this way. Like I was born <laughs> here, raised here. And I don't sound like that. That's my worst nightmare sounding. Yeah. Like yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So uh, growing up in Long Island, what were your, what was your family doing? What were your parents doing when you were growing up? What kind of work were they in? So my mom was actually a special education teacher for um, older kids. So like 15 through 21, um, special ed, they're allowed to go to high school until they're 21. Um, Mm -hmm. My dad worked in sales and traveled a lot. So the Long Island was, I mean, they're both, my dad was from Queens. My mom was born on Long Island and they stayed because Long Island is a great place to teach. Um, There's very good money in teaching on Long Island. Um, which was so it's actually my plan to become a teacher, but I, it actually is easier to become a published author than get a full-time teaching job. On Long Island, <laughs> right. Um, right. You, you were, you were juggling between like, well, what's going to pay me a lot of money, either writing or <laughs> teaching in a public school. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so they raised me here. They, um, my dad actually immigrated to Queens from Cyprus when he was two years old. Oh. But they they stayed here. Um, our family is all here. And um, my dad traveled a lot for work as a kid. And Long Island is great because, I mean, I'm like an hour train ride from New York City. I never go there because, I mean, honestly, I, I hate New York City. It's a wonderful place. I respect it. It's just very stressful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree uh, with that. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you know that those work trips um, schlepping out here. It's just a completely different pace of life. Um in the city. Yeah. Well, I'm out in Colorado. So that's a, 
different pace of life from Long Island. That is my husband and I always say that like Colorado is high up on our list of places to like retire or at least like move like when when we're a bit older because it's just it's so beautiful out there. I've been here about 26, 27 years now. And yeah, it's 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 a good place to raise kids for sure. I've I've always appreciated that. Now, were you were you an only child? Yes, I was an only child. My parents had me a little like later in life. So I was an only child. Um, My parents were a little older. And I think that definitely shaped my um, personality and helped me become a writer. Because when you are an only child and you don't have anybody to play with, it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to make up stories with my dolls for friends or I'm just going to read all the time because there's like nobody really around to socialize with. I mean, like I had friends and cousins and stuff, but you do spend a lot of time alone and around other adults um, when you're an only child. Yeah. I've, I've interviewed a lot of people and this is not an uncommon story. I mean, it kind of always goes hand in hand. I, I've talked to a lot of writers who are like, you know, military brats. Um, and it's just the idea of like not having the connections for whatever reason, whether you're an only child or or whatever, mm-hmm. and that you turn naturally to your imagination. And at a time when you're not, you know, when our, there are smartphones, so you're not turning to your phone and idly just burning all your day doing that. You're actually actively imagining things. Um, and, and I would think like with your dad traveling all the time too, that's even a little bit more of a, another missing piece that where you know, you're almost reliant all the more on yourself. Yeah. And I mean, my mom was just like a huge, was always a huge reader, is still a huge reader. And that is really when it was just the two of us, that is what we we bonded over. I mean, mm. looking back, she was, she was very smart to, I mean, like you wouldn't think about handing like a seven or eight year old a Stephen King novel, but she was like, I would be like, well, what are you reading? She'd be like this really scary book. Do you, do you think you can handle it? You want to check it out? And like, she'd hand me the book after she read it. And I'd read it and then we bond over like a shared love of reading. And it probably shaped my taste because I mean, <laughs> I, I read normal things for age appropriate things. I read Babysitter's Club and all that. But um, I was just very inter- I was a lot more interested in what my mom had on her shelf. Same. And it's always and I'd be curious to know from your opinion, it's always interesting to see like when it's your book going into the hands of it. So literally last night I was at a book fair and I was doing a signing and um, this mother comes over with her daughter. She's like, oh, my daughter bought your book. It was Mr. Tinder's girl. And, and I'm like, how, 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 yeah, are you? how old is she? He's like, I'm 11. I'm like, okay. And, and I, you know, I am a firm believer in like, hey man, read whatever you put your paws on. I'm a, but <laughs> it's different yeah. when it's your book, you feel a little, guilty and so the and i said well it's not super graphic it's dark for sure and she's like yeah the only thing i'm concerned about is language i'm like well maybe you should read a couple of chapters before you get your kid yeah <laughs> but it felt weird but because you don't know like you wonder like what is the impact uh you know does this become the the book that this one girl's like this makes me want to be a writer or like i'm not going to sleep for three months now and it's all my fault yeah, I it's so it's so funny you mentioned that because um my book Little Monsters has a bit and I remember talking about this with your publicist when I met her back in like 2017 I think because I was telling her about my new book Little Monsters and how it was like very very loosely inspired by the Slenderman case like oh 
you it just it's some like similar elements of like the, the viciousness of teenage girls and like fantasy versus reality. And she said, I have this book you'll absolutely love. She sent Was me Mr. Dana. Um, I think Stephanie. Oh, Stephanie. Okay, sure. And then I just remember thinking uh, when I was reading um, some of like, I don't read my Goodreads reviews. Well, sometimes it's funny. But the questions about Little Monsters, somebody asked like, and it, uh, Little Monsters is a YA novel. And somebody asked like, what age is this appropriate for? And this lady um, answered the question with 16 at the minimum, but I would say much higher. I would not want the themes of like hatefulness and dark acts by teens to influence my daughter. Right. Right. And and avoid the news at all costs while you're at yeah. it. And I, I mean, look, I mean, I, th- I think very few teenagers or young kids are, are reading books like that and inspiring to inspire to, to go do murder. I think more likely it's um, it, it's the opposite. Like you said, when they're drawn to those dark things, like, well, are they going to grow up to write crime fiction and thrillers of their own? Because for me, I think like such a huge part of it was my mom's taste in reading and by like the transitive property, my taste in reading, like all of those really like dark books and thrillers and stuff shaped my taste, not just as a reader, but that was the stuff I wanted to write about as I got older. Totally. And, and you don't even consciously, and I'm exact same way. So I was like a huge King fan early on and I had no desire or thoughts or aspirations to become a writer at any point. And I just started in my thirties one day, it was just this weird transformative event, but you know, and you start writing, and I never sat and thought about like, well, what is it that I want to write? I just started writing this dark stuff, and and I don't quite know why. And it might be those influences, and it might just be like I enjoy conflict. I enjoy reading or or watching shows about conflict and seeing. So you can almost say, what would I do in that situation? And and that's a safe space to let you explore that without being within the actual conflict itself. But I was, it was my agent who said, like, oh, you're a thriller writer. I'm like, I don't know what a thriller is. <laughs> and, but it, you, you just grab it. And I'm sure you get the questions as well. It's like, why, especially writing YA, why do you have to write such dark stuff? And, and the, you know, the answer to Nettle is like, well, why wouldn't I? <laughs> I, I don't understand that question. Yeah. I mean, I mean, with YA specifically, when people do like the shocked Pikachu face, like, how could you let a teen read about this? I want to just be like, well, go spend like a couple hours on a high school, like, listen to what they're interested in. Like, they, they really like some dark shit. They, they like crime. Yeah. They like Reddit unresolved. Like, they're into, they're not immune from the true crime fascination. Um, I've had like readers as young as like 13 or 14 reach out to me on Instagram, like, oh, I read your book. Was it inspired by like this particular case? And I'm like, well, how do you even know about that? There's no sheltering kids. Yeah. Like there just isn't. Like the the idea of like, I'm going to wait till they're a senior in high school to get them a phone. It's ludicrous. They are they are oh, exposed yeah. to everything. As, you know, you, you cannot <laughs> put a finger in that dam. There's no, so you, you just have to educate and mm-hmm be there to answer questions and, and kind of cross your fingers. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the language thing, especially just makes me laugh because um, I, I mean, I remember being in middle school and the absolute cesspool of the school bus, just the way that kids talked because, you could, because you could talk like that because right. your parents weren't there. Right. 
Right. There's so, no art form to it. It was just like the, it's like when a kid goes to college and just binge drinks because they can, even though they don't like it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's just because they can. So when the, those parents are like, I, I understand it now that I'm a parent, like I don't want my kid repeating those words and, and saying those words in public. But it's like, do you really think that the book is the first time they are encountering these words? Because I right. guarantee they're hearing 10 times worse in the hallways of their middle school. Totally. So, so you've got this active imagination as a child. You've got a, a wholly supportive of the arts mother. Where, what are you thinking as you're starting to look at colleges? Like, what did you want to do? It's, it's hilarious that you mentioned the supportive mother because my mom has been very, very supportive and into that stuff. Um, my dad, on the other hand, I always like have to mildly roast my dad but also give a shout out to my dad because my father was not supportive of a career in anything creative just because the way that he was raised he did not see that as a viable career path um well in he, a lot of cases it's not a viable yes and yeah and now well, kudos to him a little bit he was trying to protect you yes and now that i'm a parent myself like i i, I keep find myself I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that my child is showing like a proclivity for math because like it'll just be like easier for him to make those decisions because it is very, very hard to forge a creative career that's both fulfilling and pays the bills. And I respect that my dad did that and tried to keep me in check. And I mean, I didn't even have like these like wild aspirations of um, becoming an author. I wanted to be a journalist my senior year of high school. I graduated in 2008 when magazines were kind of like slipping off uh, being like culturally relevant because everything was starting to be online there were like these huge layoffs at entertainment weekly and i still like i i wanted to write for entertainment weekly i wanted to be a journalist um and my parents like talked some sense into me that um maybe that's too narrow of a degree uh focus on it, it was always like well you know a good career for people who really like to write and are good at writing. It's like an attorney. And it's like, oh, of course it's like, they're thinking about like winding up in the premium nursing home because I'm making six figures as an attorney. Uh, So my my first year of college, I actually studied history because I had it in my head that I was, I was going to go to law school someday and history would be Mm. the foundation for that. Mm -hmm. And I really just hated every minute of it when I, I mean, I, I have like a very like surface level interest in like history and the Constitution, but I mean, I always wanted to do like criminal law. Like I thought I was going to be um, Sam Waterson's character on Law and oh, Order. I, right, I, I right. Believe you, you wanted to get your hands dirty. Jack McCoy. Yeah, I wanted to yeah. be Jack McCoy. Um, so the, the slog of like the academia and going to like an 8 a.m. class with like a kid that showed up in a suit and a briefcase. <laughs> Just like man, this is not. This, what, this is what not. What school is this? Where did you go to school? It, it was Northeastern University in Boston, uh-huh. yeah, and um, it was just. It, it was really not. I could not see myself doing that for four years. Um, so I really had to like go back to the drawing board. It was like it, it, calling out my parents and saying, "I am absolutely miserable here. I don't want to do pre-law. I don't want to go to school for eight years." I want to transfer to um, the local state university, Stony Brook University, which is on Long Island. I could commute there. And I decided that, you know what, I really 
I, I love to read. I love to write. I never really considered teaching as a career path before. But at the time, I was like, teaching is a really great c- career that will let me write on the weekends and over the summer. Because at that point, when I was away at college and I was miserable and waiting to transfer and come home, just riding out the year, that's when I sat down. And it's like you said earlier, you don't like ever have the idea that like, oh, I want to be, I mean, some people do, but like, I never was like, oh, I want to be an author and write books. Like one day when I was miserable in my freshman year of college, I just had an idea for a book and I sat down and I started to write it. And Hmm. I was like, I'm going to really just try to finish this book in between my classes. Um, I revised it over the summer. I transferred to that state school. I started pursuing a degree to teach English. And um, I spent like my sophomore year of college just revising my first book and submitting it to agents. And of course, that was like hot mess express. I think I got rejected by every literary agency in New York City because I mean, it was like that, that arrogance that only a 19 slash 20 year old writer could have like what do you mean i have to revise what do you mean i have to rewrite my book and like get feedback like i'm gonna send it to every agent and they're gonna fight over me um and that is obviously not what happened at all well even with seasoned writers right i mean i think i went through 75 agent rejections i got an agent with my first book and that book never sold but i got and i'm still with the same agent 20 years later but like it was a a lot of rejections and you know and you're you're lucky if you get to the point where they're even suggesting that you do edits because that means they've seen exactly. some pages as opposed to just that the the thrice photocopied over rejection Poor rejection yeah and you get like a literally a year later sometimes like this was yeah. back when i was mailing i was mailing uh my query letters Yes, I I also I think in back in 2009 when I sent out my first batch of uh, query letters, I think like half the agents back then still wanted the snail mail queries. I remember right. I'm like going going to the mailbox. Um, well, and also yeah. 2009 is a very weird time, right? So <laughs> for I mean for a, you know, a lot of different professions, and the, the the publishing industry wasn't immune from the great financial crisis. So I'm sure agents were even you know, choosier than normal, which is terrible because the odds of getting an agent are so slim to begin with. Yeah, I, I remember that being at the back of my head, just like being in college and seeing the economy tank. It was that kind of put the idea in my head that like, okay, I want to make this this decision to like try to um, dedicate all this time to writing a book, but I have to be like practical about what's going on. And that kind of influenced my decision to go into teaching. I was like, well, I mean, the world is always going to need teachers. And right. Well, that is true. Everybody else was thinking the same exact thing. So, uh, <laughs> right, right. The world's always going to need bankers right. at Lehman Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> like fifty of us aiming for this, like three open teaching jobs yeah. on all, all of Long Island. I mean, especially English, because I mean, English is obviously one of the better subjects in my. Well, and what you also got into, and this actually is funny, another coincidence. My partner's parents on Long Island were both educators, and. That would the the 2009 financial crisis was something that almost prohibited them from retiring. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you have teachers staying in the workforce, so there's not even as many openings. Yes, yes, and I mean, I remember in in college, like when I was a senior and doing our student teaching, they they were very blunt with us. They were like, "If if you want to get a teaching job, you're going to have to be a substitute teacher for a minimum of five years in a district." Oh my goodness. Before they like even know who you are and consider you for a full time job, or you're going to have to move out of state. And so many of of my friends and um, college uh, 
classmates, a lot of them did move out of state. Some of them were lucky enough to get teaching jobs, but so many of them just left to do something else because it was just, it's like, it's so, it was so similar to what I was seeing happen with my group of writer friends where we all found each other on a forum called Absolute Write. People that were in like the same stage as me, like trying to approach agents with their first book unpublished. I look back at that group too. And like so many of them just got like some people, it was very easy for them. They got the agent, they got the book deal. Some people had to just try for years and years. And then like they finally got the agent, finally got that book deal. And then some people just like gave it up because the rejection really just got to them. Yeah. And and there's, and there's different stages of all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I think people think, you know, when you say I got the agent, I got the book deal. A lot of people think, oh, you got it made. And that's not the case at all. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You cleared a major hurdle for sure. Um, But that doesn't mean your book will ever sell. And if your book sells, it could just flounder. You know, a lot for in my case, it's been a, you know, a 20 year, you just keep building on it. You just keep building on it and, and success will come, but you have to just embrace the passion and the love and the need to write before anything else. Because if, yeah, and I kind of want to go back to what you said earlier, you were saying that you never looked at writing as a job. And I don't think, I don't think the best writers ever do. I don't think you ever sit down and choose like, I'm going to be a a writer versus I'm going to be, you know, a journalist or whatever. Writing is just something you do. And then Mm -hmm. you kind of almost find out later, like, oh, you can make money doing this. Yeah, Uh, exactly. But what's fascinating to me is that, and you kind of brushed over it, you just wrote this book and, you know, you didn't, you don't, you know, you didn't study that. Um, You obviously at this point were really well read, but so are millions of people, right? What was it that, that gave you the hubris (laughs) to think that you could just write a book? Cause I'm fascinated by that because that is the inflection point that so many people never get asked is the mm-hmm. actual writing of a book whether it's good or shitty or whatever just doing it is a is a herculean task yeah um i think for me it was i mean and it's i like sometimes it can be very cliche when people are like oh writing is therapeutic for me but i mean i was in a very dark place in my life like being away at this mm. school in the middle of the city and i just did not i was not um I was not about that college life. Like, I mean, it was fun going to parties like the first month of college. And then I'm like, okay, I'm bored of this. And I'm staying in my dorm every night while my roommates and friends are going out. Like, what am I, what am I going to do to amuse myself? Like I'm, I'm lonely. I, I read voraciously. And one of the things that I picked up, my mom had gotten me like as a graduation gift. I think it was Janet Ivanovich, the author of the Stephanie Plum novels, had mm-hmm. written a book on writing called How I Write. And my mom just like got it for me because she knew oh. I liked to write. And it was like that reading that book kind of demystified the whole right. process to me and like sitting down and writing an, an entire book. Like it was to me before then it was like kind of like who has the time to like sit down and write how can you think of all these sentences yeah exactly it's like (laughs) like paying them to do this like ahead of time like it really like connect for me that like you could just like have an idea dedicate a little bit of time to it each day and if you write a little bit each day eventually you're going to finish an entire book right um and it's, it's literally that simple yeah. Like it's not no more complex than that. And that doesn't mean it's a great book, but, but it's like anything else, 15 minutes a day. 
Yeah. That's all it takes. Yeah. And I mean, uh, so many people are like, I mean, they they come up to you and they're like, I mean, I, I want to write, but I, I mean, I don't have time to write a book. And it's like, well, do you have 15 minutes a day that you spend doing something else? Like, right. do you spend an hour a night playing video games? Because right. for me, that's kind of how I started. Like the, I was very depressed being away from college and the things that normally made me happy, like playing a video game or picking up a book just weren't cutting it. So yeah. replacing those things with like creating my own story, this own, this world and these characters getting lost in it for like, even if it was just, I mean, because I was still at college, I had a ton of homework and I had class and all these other obligations. But even just writing like an hour or two a day, I found myself like looking for pockets of time where I could get the words in. And I mean, it wasn't overnight. It took me like seven or eight months to even write a, a draft of a book. But it, like you said, I mean, it, it's not writing a book is never easy, but it is that simple to to find the time if I think the battle is people say that they don't have the time, but what they really mean is that they haven't really, I mean, they'll have like vague ideas for a story. Like I've, I've always wanted to write a book. Like I kind of like have this like plot in my head, but they haven't really sat down to think about what a book actually entails. Like I need to know who my main character is and like, what is the conflict? Like sometimes people just have the genesis of an idea and they don't know how to find the time to nurture it until it's something that you just like sit down and start. And and the flip side of that is to, in my experience is to not overthink it. Right. Because the other thing you can do is if you're a spiral writer is read 15 different books on how to write a book and you'll get so in your head on like, Oh, I have to do this kind of theory and I have to have the three act structure and it's got to be mm -hmm. heroes as opposed to like, I don't know, maybe this happens next. And you write that down and you don't worry about it until it's done. And I, you know, I've written a whole blog post on this whole bullshit of th there's not enough time because that is yeah. the biggest excuse for anything. And it's not about time. It's about passion. And there's a tons of things that interest me that I don't have a passion for. So I don't carve out time for them. Um, but if yeah. you truly had it, like you, you, I listening to you, I can see it. You're like, it was your escape and it was your ability to flex that um, creative muscle and to just be in a place that was different than where you were and create a world that was different than the one you lived in. And, and of course you're going to be passionate and attracted to that in, in, under those circumstances. But the hard part is you had to actually then know, how do I write sentences? How do I make a paragraph? How do I know when the next chapter starts? You know, that's, yeah, it, and that it, just comes it, with time. Yeah, exactly. It comes with time and practice. Like you mentioned, like, yeah, the, the overthinking it and reading the books, like Googling, like how to write a book. Like, I mean, I didn't do any of that. I just sat down and I had this idea and I just kind of like, I got it all out. And it wasn't until I had like a solid chunk of book, like a hundred pages that I would like get feedback from somebody. And then I realized like, oh, there is no plot or conflict to this. So it's like, nothing's like, actually happening. Yeah, that 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 completely sums up my first attempt at a novel. And like, I call it an attempt because it was a finished book, technically, but literally nothing happened in it. And you know what? That's you fine. Needed, you needed to yeah. do that. Yes, because that is really the only way you learn. And a lot of people are like, how do I get better at writing? Do like you have any like courses you suggest or books? And I'm like, honestly, do not waste your money. You just you just have to keep writing and practice. You will level up with 
every, maybe not every sentence, but every book you write, every time you get feedback from somebody and implement it, you're leveling up even if you don't realize that you're yeah. doing it. I think some people need, it is interesting because I do think some people need almost like, so I took guitar lessons when I was mm -hmm. in my 20s just because I want, but I'm like, I am never going to sit here and teach myself guitar. I need to be accountable to somebody. So I would see somebody once a week and I knew if I hadn't practiced, I was going to look like an idiot. So I do think some people need almost that inspiration and that motivation and to be told like, like what you're saying, it's not that hard. You can do it. Um, you know, and, and I think that almost sometimes is a catalyst for them because it sounds like we're similar in the sense of like, we just did it and it was no big deal in a way. And I always look back, I'm like, it was kind of a big deal. And I don't know how I started writing, but it just happened. But I think other people it's, it's hard to relate to because they've had years of angst and trying and mm -hmm. desire and they just can't cause, and probably talent does lie in there somewhere. Right. Yeah. I will say for me, like the biggest thing was the the motivation. Like, where is it coming from? I mean, for me, writing the first book, the motivation was just a form of escape. But then when I turned, like, I mean, you mentioned the word hubris. It's so funny. Like, what would compel me to try so hard to get this book published and think that other people should read it? Um, it was when I, like, I didn't even tell my parents that I was writing a book. Me like, neither. I, I didn't tell my wife at the time. I was embarrassed. Yeah, I, I was I was mortified that I had been spending all this time instead of being like a normal 20 year old and like going out and socializing and like getting into trouble like I should and making memories like I was in my room and like they knew I was up to something. But when I finally got doing her, drugs, yeah. oh, it's worse. She's writing <laughs> a novel. I have it running an online crime syndicate from the laptop. <laughs> But when I got like my very first request from an agent, like I was just so excited that I I told my mom and she told my dad and my dad's his like literal words to me were, you have a better chance of being struck by lightning than becoming a published author. I just hope you And I think back that to that. That is not true. Come on, dad. Yeah, totally not. Totally not true. But when I look back, I just love that moment so much because I, from that moment on, I became motivated out of pure spite to prove him <laughs> Right. So I think for a lot of people, it's just like unlocking what is going to to drive you to push yourself to be better, to to learn more. And I think like for me, like when you said like being held accountable to something like finding other writers to trade books with is what that was the accountability for me, like having somebody give me feedback on my work and just wanting to make it better and do right. better, like send it back to them and be like, is this any better? And um. Without yeah. without doing it so much that it's, you know, freezing you in your tracks, which can also happen because you're going to get a million oh, yeah. different opinions and you're like, I don't know who to listen to. Yeah, that uh, that is definitely something that is I have found that gets difficult, more and more difficult the farther along I am in my career because of all of the voices that are involved. Like when you have the agent's voice and the editor's voice and like you're if your friends have read it before everybody else and like maybe they agree with the agent, disagree with the editor, vice versa, that does become very difficult. I, I sometimes I tell people like all the time, like I miss when I wasn't published, honestly, because writing was more fun when it was just for me. And I was like truly just like excited to show it to somebody. 
just because they would get to read it and not necessarily them approaching it from a business standpoint. Well, I think you need to change this, this, and this to make it more palatable for readers. Um, so that's yeah. pitfall. Same thing with critique groups. Like, so I write, what I typically do is I'll send the, the first 50 to 100 page. I don't outline, so I don't even know where it's going, but I'll send the first 50 to 100 pages to my agent, just, you know, make sure there's no major red flags. And then nobody sees it. Maybe my critique group will see a few chapters and then my mm -hmm. partner reads the finished draft and then it goes to me. But I know when I'm writing, sometimes I'm like, oh, I can hear my editor. <laughs> She's not going to like this. And, and yeah. I don't know if I disagree, but but I do 100% write for myself. Like that first draft, it's just pure whim. And just this is what I would want to read. This is what is entertaining me. And then the editing is where you start to hear all those all of those voices. Yeah, definitely. And I think like that's the biggest part for me about um, what can be really frustrating when you do something like take a two book deal, because that that first book, like when you first so out of the ashes, my adult debut, like, I mean, that obviously was not under contract because I had only previously written YA. This was something that I just like sat down and wrote for myself. And that experience was just so difficult, uh, different. Um, well, it was difficult, but it was different because, I mean, editors were seeing the finished product where for years the process was just so different. Like, OK, I'm going to submit this book on like a 100 page partial and then my editor is going to have a hand in shaping the rest of the trajectory of a story. But mm -hmm. when you mm -hmm. have like a two book deal, it's like your editor knows what they signed up for for the first book. Right. But this book, it's kind of like they have more of a hand in it. So like you're pitching them this idea and like a loose outline and it just becomes such a, a different process because it's not all about you at that point. It's right. like we're going to kind of like it, it's almost like book by committee in the early stages. And mm -hmm. then when like you actually get to write it yourself, that's when more of your of yourself comes through. But um, right, your voice yeah. is still going to come through. And it's interesting when with that editorial letter or even when you're kind of you know, you have the two book deal and the second book isn't fully fleshed out. You know, a lot of times the editor won't tell you what to do, but they'll mm -hmm. tell you like what's how your ideas resonate with them and leave yeah. it to you to <laughs> reconcile that. And yeah. I want to kind of along those lines, I want to kind of go back to what you had kind of said early earlier. You know, there's this thread amongst all these writers that and that thread is bound by. Uh, the trait of tenacity. And it sounds like it resonates with you, like, you know, maybe spite in your case, but, but there's still that tenacity of like, yeah, I'm not going to just stop writing this book. I'm going to, and there's something about writers where if you could, if you're in like a corporate day job, your dedication to what you're doing, I'm just completely generalizing is like maybe 70%, right? Because it's not your, you know, business and you're just working there and you like your job or whatever, when you're writing, it is all you and is you, it is your world that you're going to be presenting to whomever. And so it does force you to be like, I can't, I can't half-ass this. I have to be so raw and vulnerable and realistic and truthful with myself when I'm going through this. And that makes it really hard. It's a, it's physically exhausting and mentally taxing to like, just you know, look at every sentence and be like, that's not the best version it can be. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons writing is so fulfilling is because you're so um, 
it's so much just you, regardless of how much input your editor is having. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like our our names are on the book, and right, so, right. I mean, it, it, like a reader that picks up the book and thinks that, like, oh, I wish this, I wish that plot twist hadn't occurred and stuff. Like, they're not, they're gonna say, like, I wish the author hadn't done that. They're not thinking, like, oh, maybe the author's editor told them to do that, or their agent said avoid this topic that they maybe wanted to see explored more. They're not, they're not thinking in those terms. So, like at the end of the day, the buck stops with the author. And I think that's why everything feels, I mean, everything is so much more high stakes for us. Like, I mean, our editors and agents and critique partners, like they can give suggestions, they can explain how something resonates with them. But at the end of the day, like we, we are the one that has to live with our name on that, on that book for like the right. rest of our lives. You, you can't unpublish a book. Which, which is why it's best not to go down the rabbit hole of reviews. I think reviews are totally important, and I think it's valid to get a flavor for them. I tend to, you know, of course, I want to look at trade reviews and stuff like that, and, and I'll follow Goodreads and, and other reviews for the first, I don't know, few weeks that the book is out, because I want to, I'm curious, I want to get a pulse of like, is this, doing, you know, but it, inevitably it all kind of starts trending towards the same average star rating, you know, you know, with enough reviews. And so like, why am I going to go down a rabbit hole? And like, you know, let me find a good one just before I go to sleep. Yeah. It's that, it's that, it's that, um, that, that like that, that serotonin hit that like reward consequence, you go looking for something, but you're not always going to like what you find. And like something that I like, really picked up on with reviews over the years is that even trade reviews these days, I mean, they're not like doing like the deep, like, analysis nobody is really going to like they have so much to cover yes it is it is very how did that individual reader respond to that book did they like it or not did it fit their personal preferences because you could read 100 reviews and half of them will probably say oh the pacing was too fast and then the other half say the pacing is too slow or it's like or i didn't get the name character those are things that you you can't control as a writer. Like there are some things that really just boil down to reader preference and trying to like mine your reviews for ways to improve as a writer. Like that's not, that is not going to help you in the long run. Like, like you said, it, it's just a rabbit hole. It's Yeah. I mean, once in a while, I will say once in a while, there might like if, if 90% of people hated the ending of your book, that's information, right? That's, yeah. and that, that, that might inform how you approach future books. I mean, that's an extreme case. Like that probably almost never happens where there's that much <laughs> agreement on anything in a review. Yeah. But yeah, but after, you know, probably up until my like fifth book, I was like more attuned to my reviews. I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> what? Like this isn't, I, I'm not seeing how this is actually guiding me as a writer. Um, so I just kind of stopped. Yeah, I I had that experience with um I think the, the the time when I finally realized like okay I'm done reading reviews was with my latest YA and I was just so curious about the reviews because it was such a difficult book to write both personally the editorial process was extremely ta- challenging and a new going in it was going to be a polarizing topic a polarizing twist so I was just very curious and. Um, the reviews just that they weren't as divisive as I thought, but I'm reading them and I'm like I've reached the point in my career where the good reviews don't make me feel better or good or validated, and the bad ones just make me feel bad. So why am right. I doing right. this? This is not productive for me. Right. 
it's just giving into curiosity that is never I mean, paying off. <laughs> no, there there's no payoff there. Right, right. Well, and it's true because as insecure as almost every writer is, regardless of success, after a certain point of time and after a certain amount of success, you do have a, a degree of confidence of just like, you know, I know the book's good. You know, was it my best? Maybe not. I don't know, but I know it's good me because, you know, at the very least, you know, uh, a New York publishing house bought it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the hardest thing to have happen. So if, if, if so-and-so in Topeka didn't like it, uh, you know, what am I going to do? Yeah. And I'm what gonna, you not going to bother. About, like just acknowledging sometimes that a book isn't going to be your best is the most freeing thing that I've learned to embrace as a writer. Like that's not to say I'm going to turn in something that is like, I feel is subpar or couldn't be better, but you just reach a point sometimes where you really feel like this would, this one isn't it. Like I, I like my other I, I, I've done all the work that I can do on this book. This is the best version of this particular book that exists. I can either be super neurotic and perfectionist and pull it from publication or we just get the best possible version of that book out there and see what happens and i mean i have been in that situation before where and it's so funny because the book that i personally feel that way about little monsters which was like you know what that is not my fave that is my highest rated book on goodreads and that's the one that readers like really seem to flip out over and connect with the most so it just goes to show that like you're your perception of your own work. And like, that is another reason that like reviews just aren't helpful because like, yeah, people like my readers are are loving that book, but I don't really feel like I'm learning anything from that, that experience of why they loved it because right. it was still a difficult book for me to write. I don't know what I would have done differently. And, and the, the opposite can totally be true, right? You could be right. Like this is a sublime book and yeah. this is going to, and it just kind of does. Okay. And you're like, huh, and it, you, you, to your point, you lose all perspective, right? Three fourths of the way through your book, you're like, I don't like this book. I don't even know why I started writing this book. I don't know how it's going to end. I'm sick of it, you know. And then, and then you just go through all the edits, which just kind of, you know, compounds all the hate you have for the book. Yeah. And then it comes out a year later. You're like, oh, I remember that book. Now I'm excited again. Yes. Because <laughs> you're already in the middle of hating something new. Yes, exactly. That is that is uh, evergreen is sentiment. So you're you must be excited for uh, the upcoming uh, release. What is a couple weeks, right? Yeah. So it officially um, comes out on May first. That this has been a completely different experience now, just because I'm writing in um, a new age group for a new audience. But um, Amazon has this program called Amazon First Reads, and right. Out of the Ashes was, which is why you have sixteen hundred reviews and it hasn't come out yet. Yes. So I I always used to like be that Kindle reader, like, why the hell does this book have over a thousand reviews and it's not even out yet? And I learned that it is because of a program called Amazon First Reads. So when um, Out of the Ashes was picked for that program, I was obviously very excited, but it is a very bizarre experience, like having so many people read your book before it is even officially out, before all Trade reviews have even rolled in and to be doing like the whole promotional publicity circuit while so many people have already read the book. So it kind of for me, it was it's honestly been awesome just having like the bandaid ripped off because I'm not like nervous or anticipatory about this book. I'm like, 
Right. You know, it's out there. Right. It's out there and like thousands totally. of people have already apparently read it on Kindle. Um, it's some of the reviews are absolutely hilarious. Like <laughs> Anne who did not read it but was so angry that so many of the first reads books were by women. Um really just yes, apparently there is like a review bombing campaign. Um because huh. not enough books by men. Um, so that is definitely something I have not experienced on the YA side before. And now can Amazon, I mean I Amazon's totally obviously in control of their site. Is there anyone who's kind of like I respect all reviews, but if they admittedly say I even read the book, come on, that review shouldn't exist. Yeah, I I mean I share that I share that sentiment just because and I mean I am somebody that is not very uptight about reviews but if I am going to purchase something on Amazon like not even a book and like let's say like I want I have a tape measure sitting in front of me so I'm going to use a tape measure as an example but like I'm going to go buy a tape measure on Amazon and like the top review is like two stars somebody like I didn't buy this but I don't like it like Right. It's just so annoying to me as a consumer. Right. So it's not even like a, my feelings being hurt. Like, I don't give a shit about that. I just think it is like so unproductive for people who actually like want to purchase a product and want to read a book. And like, I feel the same way if I'm like looking at reviews of books and it's like it, it was clear there was some sort of like campaign, like somebody's like angry about something. And it's just like it doesn't really say anything about the book. They admit they haven't um, read the book. So. I mean, there is like a function to report it, but um, yeah, they're they're still there. I think what happens is they they eventually get buried by the real reviews, and uh, yeah. that's a positive thing. It's but not going it, to be the the top uh, critical review on the on the site. Yes, yeah. So that no, that's been, pretty annoying. <laughs> it's it's right. been interesting. My um my husband kind of like monitored it for a little bit for me just to see mm. if this is going to be because there were a couple of those. So we were like, okay, we kind of have to keep our eye on this and see. Is this going to blossom into something? Yeah. Is it is this going to be a thing where my rating gets tanked by a bunch of incels? But um, it's and that's really- that's totally has happened for sure. Oh yeah, all, all the time. Lots so of story, which is so gross. Yeah. So I have- and that's exactly right. The incels. <laughs> Yeah. So I had him keep an eye on the reviews for me and it and, um it it just became so hilarious, like a one star review that said like deplorable language and uses the Lord's name in vain. And I was like, This is amazing. I want right. to get this one star review framed. <laughs> because I mean, I have never I I don't think that I mean to go back to the topic of language, just like jumping from like writing YA to writing adult, like you would expect more of that in YA. But I have found that like the audience that the the book is re- that out of the ashes is reaching in that early stage, like the people that um, read exclusively on e-readers and Kindle, they are a little bit fussier about that stuff because I mean I definitely like have gotten feedback on on my ya's that like i use too much foul language like mostly from my father who told me that he turned my audiobook of that weekend off because <laughs> it used the word fuck too much oh. the vendicious sensibilities but um yeah i was i was shocked and heartened that i was getting that criticism in adult and i'm like oh okay so it's the same all around this is really yes. not different like i'm more prepared yep yep exactly well, listen, Gary, we're going to wrap up. Before we do, we're going to do a real quick storytelling. And normally I have three books picked out in front of me. But lately, I've just been asking my guest to to give me a color. 
and I'll go pick out a book of that color from the bookshelf. Okay, I'll try. I'll try not to look to try not to cheat. Um, I'm gravitating towards something red. Okay, I'll do red. <laughs> Since we were giving so much love to Stephen King, uh, these stories, uh, which underappreciated one. I don't know if I actually ever read this one, which is terrible. Um, and I think, didn't, wasn't this a show on Hulu or something like that? Not yes, too I, long I ago? think with Julianne Moore. Um, yes. Yes. I didn't, I didn't see that either. So anyway, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't think I've, this is one of the few that I actually haven't read by King yet. Um, but give me a page between one and 500. Um, 372. And then I'm just going to pick a random or somewhat random sentence. Um, I'm going to scan it for a second to make sure there's one that's um, good in here. Um, okay. And I'm going to read this sentence and just give me the next couple of sentences, whatever comes to your mind. I'll do a couple of sentences in like a couple of minutes. We'll, we'll, we'll call it a day. Awesome. Um, uh, for a moment, she was assailed with terrible doubt. Perhaps the whole thing had been nothing but her madness. He walked to the kitchen and poured herself a glass of water and eyed the Xanax that she hadn't touched all week. Madness was an underrated thing, she considered. The way that she was feeling was a place that she could happily escape to, maybe forever. The numb felt so relieving. She turned the bottle around her hands and contemplated whether the Xanax could dull the madness. She popped the top and dumped them down the garbage disposal. Except for there were four still floating in the kitchen sink on the stainless steel. She picked them up and considered them and wondered, what would that feel like? Four of them. She looked at the clock, knowing she had to leave in about 20 minutes to pick up the kids from school. Ooh, cliffhanger. Um, (laughs) (laughs) As she was reaching for the Xanax floating at the top of the sink, the doorbell rang. She dropped everything. She walked to the door. She examined the screen of the ring doorbell, but there was nobody on the front steps. On a normal day, she might have been even a little bit scared. But normal days weren't a thing that happened to her anymore, not for quite some time. She liked the idea that somebody was playing a trick on her. She opened up the door and stood out on the front porch and just said, I'm here. That's awesome. I don't know if I can top that. All right, let's call it there. <laughs> that, that was so much fun, by the way. I want to like me. I work in a library. I want to make everybody like play that game. It's for- it's <laughs> great, right? I love it doing fun. it. Like it's always nerve wracking, but I love doing it because I like to just I like to just accept the openness of what another person is saying and be like, oh yeah, I wasn't going to go there, but that's a great direction, yeah. you know, and, and, and just going along. 
mean, that, that could have got that could have gotten dark when I like incorporated the Xanax in there. And I like the positive note of it. I know I did it. I did it with somebody the other day, and I forget who. But she went super happy, and I kind of panicked because I'm like, yeah. I don't know if I know how to do that. <laughs> and I mean, and it, what she was saying was fantastic. I'm like, I I don't do a, a lot of happy. I do hopeful. Like, I feel like my endings are always hopeful, even though a lot of people think they're like super dark. But no, no, there was like, you don't know what happens. So then maybe it's going to be good. And people, yeah. are, but, but but pure outright happy is not my, not my strong. No, same. I mean, you do need that glimmer of hope. So it's not like totally depressing. But yeah, the uh, the happy. I don't find like the, the cheery, happy endings that satisfying, though, in a way. I kind of like something to mess with your head a little bit at the end. Yeah, I like, I, yes, exactly. I think that's exactly, because I, and, and to that same point, I don't like super depressing either. Yeah. Like, even though I can write that, like, when I see it, I'm like, oh, this just makes me feel sad and gross. And like, I would rather just have something kind of twi- malevolently twisty, you know, where you're like, you're not really sure and you want them to be okay, but it's not clear. So your mind can implant whatever ending you want. I think that's important. Um, even though if I have a very fixed idea and I'm not saying what it is as the author, I want the writer or the reader to be like, oh, I think, yeah, I think she got out of that okay. Yeah. I always tell people that like my ideal mystery thriller ending, like I just, the book version of Sharp Objects, I just love how that ends because it is a really messed up, terrible ending when you, when you learn what happens, but the, the main character still, you get the sense that she's going to be okay and move past right. Limit. like it's like i mean she she'll be okay everything around her is like gone to shit and her family is is destroyed and right it's just a psychopath but i mean she's but new beginnings, <laughs> yeah, new beginnings. <laughs> <laughs> well carol what what a pleasure it was talking to you and i'm i'm very excited for uh, yeah, it's very exciting that you know i know obviously you're a well-established author with a lot of books to your name but kind of you know going to this new territory um and, and even though you already know how it's being received which is very well with 1600 reviews what a cool kind of time in your life to be like oh this is kind of a new journey for me yeah thank you so much i mean it was great chatting with you it's always nice when it feels just like a conversation between writers and stuff and getting a talk shop um, I, I'm, I'm not asking you what literary figure you want to have dinner with <laughs> yeah yes exactly those like, those i don't know go like uh and then i just sound like a bumbling idiot it's well, that's why I don't prepare anything for the show. Like, I want it to be completely freewheeling. I want to be like, oh, we just met at a cocktail party, and I'm totally fascinated by you. I want—I have all these questions that I'm thinking of right now for you. It's—it's it's a little bit more organic that way. Or at least, it's- yeah. No, it was awesome. It—it it really was. That was—that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, and good luck with your next book. I'm very excited. Thanks, I appreciate that, and I hope to see you at a at a conference at some point. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully, be getting back out there now that we're getting back. The status quo a bit more in the world. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the rest of your week here. Appreciate it. You too. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. So that's it. That is my conversation with Kara Thomas. And, uh, you know, I was kind of grooving on uh, that little story that we were doing at the end. I could I could visualize it. I could see those those pills against the, the, the gleaming steel of the um, sink basin. And, you know, I'm not sure who knocked on the door. Um, I don't know. I don't think it was a hopeful thing. <laughs> I think it was going to be about to get like crazy dark real fast. So maybe it was good that we ended it 
Um, but yeah, Kara, Kara's pretty, pretty incredible. And um, her, her upcoming book, Out of the Ashes, which will probably be out by the time this airs, um, looks amazing. And sorry, gotten some stellar, stellar reviews. So if you want to find out more about her, please go to her website, which is just kara-thomas.com. And please head over to my website. I would appreciate it. CarterWilson.com. You can uh, check out my books, check out my event dates, and you can check out my retreat, The Gentle Novelist. And if you want to sign up and finally, finally, finally write that book that has been in your head for years, come out to Boulder, Colorado later this summer in August. And uh, it'll be a small group and it'll be intense and it'll be vulnerable and it'll be hopefully the most rewarding thing, writing thing that you've done. So I highly encourage you to check that out. That is it for now. Uh, Of course, we have more episodes of Making It Up coming out soon. Um, In the meantime, as always, thank you so much for listening and or watching this. And, uh, you know, I'm always forever appreciative, appreciate, uh, appreciative. Jesus, of all of you who, um, who tune in. Take care.